to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which we gather today. And I pay my respects to their elders, past and present. I extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples here today. Hello and welcome to another episode of Inspired by Yarra. This is a podcast created to enhance, connect and inspire the Yarra Valley Grammar community and beyond. So (laughs) wherever you're listening from today, I want to say welcome. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for joining us. I'm delighted to present to you another conversation with a yog, a Yarra old grammarian. And today, Mr. Tim Amos from the class of 2002, a gently spoken, inspirational young man. His journey was here at Yarra was from prep right through to year 12. And since then, hasn't always known exactly where the path was going to lead, but had courage enough to keep exploring, to keep pursuing a sense of adventure. Nowadays, working as an emergency medicine doctor. And we're gonna find out a little bit about not only his journey through engineering and some of the things he learned from that, but also what it's like on the front line. We salute Tim and his colleagues particularly in this time, but as we explored in this conversation, they're out on the front line all day, every day. And we acknowledge and appreciate the work that our emergency services do in caring, nurturing, and sometimes saving lives. I hope you'll enjoy this conversation and encourage you to pass it on, to share it, to like it, to subscribe to this podcast so that we can grow our audience and touch more and more people. Because I think it's stories like this one that help us all to be inspired by Yarra and the stories that have evolved and grown from the people who are part of this great community. Enjoy this conversation with Tim Amos from the class of 2002. Welcome back to another episode of Inspired by Yarra. I'm delighted to be joined by Tim Amos from the class of 2002. Tim, that feels like a long way back for me, but what about for you? Yeah, it certainly does feel like a while ago. Um, Certainly having done a careers day recently, I was reminded that it's been 18 years. So um, yeah, that was a bit of a surprise. A lot can uh, change in a person's life in 18 years, and we will get to that in a moment. But I just wonder if you can take us right back to your beginning your beginning of your Yarra journey. What year level did you come to Yarra in and what was it like? Yeah, I actually started uh, at prep in Yarra in 1990. So I spent uh, the whole 13 years at Yarra Valley, one of, I think, four people in my class that went the whole way through. Wow, that that is significant. And in that time, not only are you growing and learning and developing, but the school is growing around you and changing. Prep, wow, that, that's quite a career, 13 years of your life. And uh, what do you remember of junior school? What were some of the fun things you can remember doing? Yeah, well, I mean, when I started, I think um, it was only co-ed for, I think, year 11 and 12. And so it was all, I think I became co-ed when I was in year four, I think, um, four or five. And certainly, um, but yeah, a lot of good memories from the, the ski team back then and um uh, yeah, no, it's, uh, it's obviously changed a lot over that period. That's interesting for us to recognise because there'll be people who will be listening uh, today who are 
current students or parents of current students and and many of them are part of our ski team and so and and I don't want to highlight the idea of that it was such a long time ago but way back then we had a ski team can you remember any other activities that happened outside of school that were sort of parts of different groups do you remember was there a music group that kind of supported the school was there a a canoeing or a kayaking club yeah i think um you know there were those things certainly in in primary school i was very involved in the ski team um whereas not so much in those other things I remember the the performing arts center was built around that time, and there was a lot of, um, yeah, a lot of fundraising around that. But um, no, nothing off the top of my head there. Sorry. <laughs> sure, the performing arts center. So you, you, it was being built while you were at school. Yeah, and my mum was quite heavily involved in sort of some arts, uh, um, uh, d- arts displays and presentations there as once it was built and. Um, and during the fate when they used to get a lot of um, artists to come in and display their work and sell their work. And, um, yeah, a lot of memories of my mum working around the, the clock to get those things going back For in sure. the mid-'90s, yeah. And do you recall whether it was in your junior school days or in secondary school, were you ever on the stage in the PAC? Yeah, I did a few of those uh, junior school uh, events, Um Actually, I remember one in 94, um, a Mr. Ramston organised a thing called Botat and I, I, it stood for something. I can't remember exactly what it was, but this was the, the, the yearly uh, event and, um, and it was sort of a musical slash performing arts kind of show. And, um, uh, yeah, it was amazing. It, was, it, it did an amazing job of that. But, um, yeah, that was probably one of my stronger memories of primary school. So that was... Um, effectively an acronym, was it, BOTAT? Because what I'm interested in is if any of our listeners know what BOTAT stands for, that they would make contact with us, send us an email to podcast podcast at au, and uh, we'll add that to the details. Bod, bo, so what was it? Yeah, it was BOTAT. Um, BOTAT. But I cannot remember what it stands for, but it was, um, yeah, it was the big event, the big performing arts event of the year. Yes. And and do you remember much about being on stage? Is that something that you looked forward to or were you nervous? Were you wobbling out the back before you came on or did you command the stage? No, it wasn't It wasn't really my thing. And the, the things that I did, I certainly was nervous about. I, I remember I had to be uh, Robert Menzies and give him, uh, to give a speech in uh, year five or six and... Um, yeah, I was pretty pretty petrified about that. It wasn't yeah, it wasn't my forte. Sure, sure. So, what was your forte? What, what sort of subjects or areas of the school did attract you, and and where do you feel like you found your spot? Um, yeah, probably the biggest common theme was skiing. Um, I was a member of the ski team the whole way through, competed in the skiing um, for a number of years, and um, uh, and even my parents and other, you know, cousins who went to the school were all very, very involved in that as well. Yeah. And and even within skiing, there are, you know, you can niche down, niche down. Are you cross-country skiing? You're downhill? Are you doing jumps? Are you doing uh, tricks? Yeah, mo- moguls was kind of the thing that I did the most. Um, and then uh, a bit later on, when it became invented, uh, ski across, which is like a, a four-skier race kind of thing. Um, oh, so that, that's that's high adrenaline, that one. That's one that I do like to watch. So that's four skiers, you start at position A, you get to position B, and you get there as quickly as you can. Yeah, it's good fun, yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Um, presumably, you've had a couple of uh, trips, slips and falls playing this sort of sport. Yeah, um, been fairly lucky to not break anything too badly and I still have use of my knees, unlike a lot of my contemporaries. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I was going to say, uh, and we're going to talk about it some more in a moment, but I know that nowadays you know a lot more about the human body and I just wondered what your medical opinion might be of sports like doing moguls, which is effectively, again, start at the top, get, in, get to the bottom, but there's a whole lot of little bumps along the way. Yeah, it was certainly pretty commonplace for people, uh, even as teenagers or in their 20s, to have full knee reconstructions in that sport. So I was pretty lucky. Um, it, look, I don't regret it, but um, uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty hard on certain parts of the body. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I gather that for you, a, a trip, a weekend, whether it may be a week at a time for different competitions, hitting to the snow in the cold was... As, as a great thing for you that was something you enjoyed is that is that yeah yeah um really loved all the the events and i remember being you know the, the yarra valley bus would always um uh you know come through yarra glen on the way to mount buller and i'd i'd be waiting there and, and jump on board and um you know you'd spend a, a day up there and come back late at night and um the whole bus would be everyone would be wet and cold and you know sweaty and um but it was always a yeah it was a good day i really enjoyed all those I, I'm. You're not selling it like you're wet, you're cold, you're sweaty, you're stinky, you're late at night. It's been a long day, but it sounds like when you're on the mountain, that's 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 what it's all about. Yeah, yeah, uh, a lot of good memories from that. Yeah, yeah. I, I love it. That's that's awesome. Tell me a little bit about your educational foundation at Yarra. In terms of you know, perhaps you by now you've moved up into secondary school. There might have been a few electives along the way. Were there was there a particular academic aspect of school that you were drawn to? Like, did did you hang out in the science department? Were you you know loving it out in the PE area, or did you you know you enjoyed your writing and you're part of the English group? Where where academically where did you end up? Um, look, I, I certainly fell down more in the science and maths side of things, but um, certainly outdoor ed was probably the subject I well definitely enjoyed the most and spent the most time sort of hanging out with people from you know who would be doing that subject as well and certainly got to know a lot of the teachers quite well in the outdoor ed department that was really sort of the you know throughout the whole high primary school high school the thing i enjoyed most there's definitely a theme here you you're looking for adventure you're looking for a bit of adrenaline and uh, maybe you like the idea of being away from home for a little while yeah and that's certainly uh continued since high school as well so um yeah so tell me a little bit about uh, since leaving school, what's what's a destination that you would recommend that you've travelled to, you've seen it, you've experienced it? Is there a, I mean, not that it'll be, look, it'll be a while before people will be able to join you there, but what's a great destination? I've been quite lucky since high school, actually. I, I've spent a few years overseas travelling um, and working internationally, um, probably the the best thing I've done recently has been with my wife getting quite involved in um, sort of mountaineering and ski mountaineering, um, for which we spent a few a few months travelling around the world. Um, probably my favourite place has been uh, Greenland. We spent a few weeks um, with a with a team kind of exploring some new areas to ski in Greenland um, a year or two ago, um, just camping and making our way around on on skis and boats and whoever we could hitch a ride with and um 
yeah, that was a pretty special experience. Um, pretty lucky to have been able to do that. So, excuse my ignorance, but is is um, skiing and that experience and trekking around in the snow in Greenland is that a different experience than say Australian mountains? What's the difference? Yeah, so um, at least where we were in Greenland is not many people have skied there. A lot of these places are um, not particularly explored and mountains haven't been climbed. So, um, you know, it, it often involved uh, hitching a ride on a fishing boat up a fjord and getting dropped off and, um, you know, camping for a couple of weeks and then sort of uh, exploring the mountains around your campsite. So it's all... Uh, as opposed to Australia, where you're in a ski resort, you catch lifts up and you can stay somewhere relatively warm. You, in Greenland, you'll be staying in a tent and cooking your own food and climbing these mountains under your own power. So um, hiking up and skiing down. So, but the benefit of I think ski mountaineering is that uh, you get yes, you still have to climb up, but you get the benefit of actually skiing down on skis, which is a lot more fun than having to walk down. So, yeah. Look. I mean, I get that bit. I I appreciate the fun of coming down, but it it seems like you you look for discomfort, or perhaps the adventures that you like to have involve discomfort, like the effort of walking, the effort of setting up a tent in the snow and trying to cook and somehow keep yourself warm and well fed and energized enough the next morning to get up and go exploring again. There's there is definitely a sense of adventure in your makeup. Yeah, uh, certainly, um, yeah, have sought out some travel experiences that have some adversity along with them. Um, and, yeah, certainly when you're on a mountain and it's, it's cold and, and, you know, you don't want to get out of your sleeping bag to cook, to melt some water, to have a co- cup of coffee, it's uh, it does take that extra bit of effort to do that for sure. <laughs> So what do you what do you make of or can you speak for a moment about the notion of I don't know whether you call it self discipline or determination or willpower or decision making because you're right I, I think when you're in the relative comfort of your sleeping bag albeit you're on the snow you've got a very thin piece of fabric between you and the elements so warmth is is probably relative but to leave there and you know like one of the hardest things i find camping is getting up in the middle of the night and going to the toilet yeah when it's snowing that's got to be that much harder doesn't it yeah um and certainly in these particularly cold places you'll have a a bottle and a funnel and um you really got to make sure you choose the right bottle to have a drink from in the morning otherwise uh yeah it goes badly (laughs) That could end very badly. So, so let's go back. Let's uh, bring it back to um, downtown Ringwood. Tell me a little bit about um, school life and home life, and what was the travel like? How did you travel to school? What was a normal day look like for you? Yeah, so I uh, for primary school I lived in Healesville, um, so a good forty five minutes from school. Uh, high school we moved down to Coldstream, so we're a bit closer. But my dad worked close-ish to Ringwood so I pretty much um, always got a lift into school and um, sometimes caught the bus home but it didn't really stop particularly close to my place so I was kind of limited in always needing a lift wherever I wanted to go somewhere. We're speaking with Tim Amos from the class of 2002 and, and Tim you've looked for adventure in your life. When you got toward the end of secondary school and was that HSC or VCE back then? And 
Yeah, VCE. VCE. And how did you go? Did you don't have to remember scores, and maybe in fact you you have no idea, but did you do as well as what you had hoped? Yeah, I um, I mean, I'd always been somewhat academic, but as my parents and teachers often told me, I lacked uh, application, and so my marks for sort of year 10, 11 didn't necessarily reflect what I maybe could have, but I didn't particularly know what I wanted to do, so wasn't particularly driven, I guess. Yeah. I uh, But then I remember actually uh, Mr. F- uh, Farrell, one of the teachers, kind of sat down with me early on in year 12 and sort of um, not gave me a little bit of a talking to in a good way. And, um, and after that, I sort of did apply myself a bit better. I, um, you know, worked pretty hard for the final sort of six, seven months of year 12. Uh, I got 95.5. Wow. And at that stage, I was wanting to do, well, I thought I maybe wanted to do architecture and, um, the entrance score was 95.5. So as my parents always said, I only did just enough to get, to get by, which was exactly right. So, um, yeah. <laughs> and, and did you, did you pursue architecture? So you were applying for courses. Where did you go from year 12? That's a great score. Yeah. I, uh, so I, I had applied for architecture and then when it came to the final opportunity to change your university, um, requests or, you know, preferences, I wasn't convinced, so I, I changed my preference to engineering and science at Melbourne, which um, because since I, I wasn't set on architecture, so I decided to pick something fairly broad that would leave sort of opportunities to change or move into something I found I enjoyed more. So, yeah, changed to engineering science and, and started that the year after. You're not an engineer now, though, are you? Uh, I have an engineering degree, but no, I'm not an engineering so you go through, you do engineering science, you apply yourself just as much as you need to. In the midst of that, you probably pass, but then you don't pursue it. What happens next? I did work briefly as an engineer. I, I worked in mining for BHP, the uranium mine in South Australia. And then I, uh, but while I was out there, I, I'd never been particularly committed to engineering, but I, um, I enjoyed uni. I did a lot of it good things like going on exchange to, to Germany during that course for a year. But um, I I started to look around at other options and some of my friends were doing uh, paramedics and other sort of medical based um, courses. And uh, yeah, I sort of came across the idea of uh, medicine. So I, I started to study for and sat the entrance exam for medicine and uh, sort of accidentally got in and um, yeah, um, here we are. <laughs> Here we are. What did what did you learn in those early years of working life? You're working as an engineer, and are you travelling out to mines? Are you living off site as such, or, or, or on site as the case may be? Um, and what did you learn? What do you take away from those early years of employment? Yeah, look, working in the mine was quite interesting. Um, it, you certainly. Um, uh, I mean, I've, I've had a lot of jobs throughout uni as well in sort of you know, engineering based. And so I don't know if I learned anything particular other than just how to function in a workplace, how to work as part of a team. And, um, and sometimes I was thrown in as a fairly young engineer to a team of fairly, you know, older sort of tradespeople and trying to, you know, I guess, you know, get the projects done. Uh, yeah. <laughs> 
I don't have a good explanation for that, actually. <laughs> but 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 you you mentioned the value of team and the importance of working in a team, and and by the sounds of it, whether you felt equipped or not, you having to do your part in the the, the bigger picture to get the job done. Bring us up to date with the work, the career, the occupation that you have now, and if there is a link back to team, can you tell me a little bit about what you do and where does team fit in? Yeah, so um, uh, these days I'm an emergency medicine uh, doctor, um, but also specialising in intensive care at the Alfred Hospital in Paran. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so that is a very team-based job. We have quite a tight-knit team in our emergency department. And yeah, we do have to work with different staff members each day, um, as in sometimes you'll have a very sick patient and you'll have four or five members of the team managing that patient at once. And you may not have worked with each other for a week or a month or a couple of months, but you all do have to come together, function at a pretty high level and communicate well to uh, you know help these sick patients. Um, and yeah, you're probably right in that bringing it back to engineering, having to work in a lot of different environments with lot of different people uh probably has put me in good stead to sort of you know communicate with people that um you know in different different situations so what about you and your knowledge of yourself what makes you a good uh emergency medicine doctor is there a character trait is there a problem solving attribute is there a communication what what are the bits of you the strengths that lend towards being a good emergency medicine doctor? Emergency medicine does tend to attract people who are kind of jacks of all trades within medicine. Uh, So I guess we kind of specialise in managing all acute illnesses within their first few hours. So, um, And we do a lot of procedures, a lot of work with our hands, be it uh, fixing, you know, putting someone's bone straight that's broken or putting someone to sleep and putting a breathing tube down and uh, and putting them on the machine to breathe. So it is a very, very practical job. And there's not always a, uh, a clear solution to every problem. Problem, So you do have to have a bit of a problem-solving, um, you know, trait. And that, that really helps. Now, you and your colleagues more than ever are on the front line of... Um, the pandemic, COVID-19, we're in the midst of that. And from time to time, publicly, people are saluting and celebrating the work that you and your team do on a general scale. But as we were chatting before we started, you actually, that's your that's what you do every day. It doesn't matter whether there's a pandemic on, you're still having the, the doors open and somebody gets rushed in. They've just arrived at the hospital, either perhaps by a helicopter, perhaps by um, ambulance, and do you, how much of what comes wheeling through that door are you aware of? Or are you problem solving and getting information thrown at you from the moment they, they step in? Well, they don't step in, they get wheeled in. But what's your, what's your, are you going through a, a series of checklists in your own head over the first 10 seconds? Or what are you looking for in that, what some people would see as a panic moment? You have to remain calm, I imagine. What, what's happening for you in that moment? Um, yeah, so probably the best example is I've, I've done a, a reasonable amount of work in, in trauma um, and 
being a trauma center, uh, some days I'll be rostered onto the trauma side of the emergency department. And so we'll be seeing the car accidents, the, the gunshots, the stabbings, that kind of stuff. And it is, it is very protocolized. So, um, you know, we might get a, a heads up from the ambulance that the helicopter's landing in 10 minutes with someone with a, you know, a, a car accident and a certain set of, um, vital signs. And, and based upon that, we, um, usually have a quick chat and a bit of a, a, a make a bit of a plan as a team as to what we're going to address first, what uh, procedures we're potentially going to have to perform and what life-saving interventions we will prioritise when the patient arrives. Um, it is a very protocolised approach in trauma um, and uh, and it is kind of a something that you, you, it makes more sense once you've done it a lot of times like most of us in the trauma center have. So, but day one, you didn't have that experience or that expertise. So I guess you're trusting the system and you're following the lead of others. Yeah, for sure. And um, and thankfully at the Alfred, we've got, uh, you know, our trauma team has got a lot of senior senior doctors that have been around for many years in the trauma department. And, um, and as you sort of work your way through the ranks, you'll be supported uh, a lot. And as you become more competent and more confident, um, you know, you, you won't require as much support. And so, um, when I first started, yep, I was petrified at every trauma patient that got rolled in. Um, but these days I'm a bit more comfortable at managing most things that come through the door. I imagine that, that one of the, the really challenging parts of your role whether it's trauma, it's certainly emergency, is that it doesn't always go to plan. And and I dare say sometimes you do the best you can, your team is working as efficiently and as effectively as you know how, but it still might not work. How do you deal with, is that considered a, a, a failure? And is it you know, do you de- debrief that? How do you process the the notion that you've got a life in your hands, literally in your hands, and sometimes it doesn't turn out the way you want to? Yeah, it, I think we've certainly improved a lot as a specialty over the years. Um, you know, when uh, a few years ago, when stuff would go wrong, there would often be a lot of blame thrown around, and um, and that's not very constructive. Whereas Certainly at the Alfred, we have very much of a, a no-blame culture. There's none of the recriminations as to, oh, you should have done this, we should have done that. It's all sort of looked at more of a learning experience. Um, and certainly it's not to say we don't fully follow up on when things don't go to plan and work out how we can do things better, but that really is the focus. So we will come together when something's gone really wrong, sit down and have a debrief and talk through everyone's experiences and how we could learn in the future to, you know, um, to do a better job and to potentially have a better outcome. So uh, there, there is a lot of work that goes into that, that, that debriefing process and learning from our mistakes. Yes. And, and, and by the sounds of it, process is a really important part of, of your world. Um, when somebody's being wheeled in, there's a process that you go through. When, when things go well or not, there's a process that you go through. And I wonder in the midst of that, is there still room for creativity? Is there still room for your own, ah, I reckon we should try this? Or, or is it very much 
uh, you just follow the book? Um, so within trauma specifically, which is really kind of a subspecialty within emergency medicine, it, there isn't a lot of deviation from these protocols. And certainly there are times when the patient is just so sick that you're not working from the protocol, you're working from your experience and what you think will work in that situation. Um, within emergency medicine itself, there is more room for that kind of problem solving, you know, um, but that's more with like the more, the more surprising problems, you know, when someone, for instance, has a cockroach stuck in their ear and you're like, how am I going to get this out? Uh, and that's when you kind of use the tools you have at your disposal and try and work out how to get fish a cockroach out of someone's ear. There's not a good way to do it. There are multiple ways and some may work and some may not. But yeah, there, there is that kind of problem solving. Wow. I, I must confess, when I thought emergency, I thought, um, you know, your, your, your car accident, your... Um, you know, putting people on life support, that sort of thing. But you're quite right. Having a cockroach in your ear, that's not flash either. I wonder whether you could, with a, you know, obviously with um, confidentiality and so forth, but is there a, a, a the, what, like what's the most bizarre, extraordinary, awkward uh, situation that you've come across? Uh, look, most people who work in emergency have a bit of a collection of stories of interesting objects that have been found in people. Um, <laughs> a lot of them aren't, uh, aren't PC and aren't, aren't uh, you know, PG-13 objects that are found in people. Um, but they, they are certainly one of the more entertaining parts of our job. Um, uh, sometimes they're not pretty and having to get work out a way to fish them out. But certainly one of my more enjoyable ones was finding a gigantic cockroach in someone's ear last year. It was very, very satisfying trying to pull that out. Did they know it was there? Yeah, they, they came in and they said, I've got a cockroach in my ear. And I, I didn't quite believe them at first, but yeah, they really did. <laughs> I, I wonder I wonder how, I don't even know, want, well, I don't think I want to know, how does that, a cockroach, and how do you know that, oh, actually a cockroach is going and going and he's he's in my ear and I can't get it out? Yeah, uh, he was very aware of it, just asleep, and a cockroach crawled in and wow. I didn't know that could happen. I'm been a bit more concerned about it happening ever since, but uh, yeah. <laughs> Gosh, we'll look at them differently. I think they're not probably the most uh, highly desirable creature anyway, but now that we fear that they might creep into your ear, that's, uh, that's possibly even worse. Tim Amos from the class of 2002, I wonder whether you could tell us a little of what you recall the school motto to be. It was Lavavi Oculus. Do you recall what that means? It lifts your eyes to the sky. Yeah, or lavavi oculus to lift up your eyes, yes. And um, we here on the property, we have the hills off in the distance. The school psalm talks about eye to the hills will lift my eyes. That notion of lavavi oculus, lifting up your eyes, what does that mean to you nowadays? What do you think the message behind that Latin is? Um. I'm not sure if I ever associated it necessarily with the motto, but certainly I guess my approach over the last, well, since high school has been, even if I haven't quite known where I want to go, be it career or study wise, is to always apply myself fairly well to try and give myself the best opportunity later on, should I decide, should I work out what I want to do? I mean, my first degree, I wasn't 
particularly sure I wanted to be an engineer, but I worked quite hard and gave me the opportunity later on to change over into medicine, which is something that I, you know, really quite enjoy these days and happy I've, I've done. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's probably the best way I'd think of it. Yes. So it's, it's even though you don't know all of the steps between here and there, it's, it's look forward, look ahead and uh, look out for the possibilities. Yeah, take the opportunities that you have now to maximise your, you know, what you might, what might come in the future. Yes. Yeah. No, that's great. I wonder if if you were to talk to a, a student nowadays, or even a an almost finished year twelve student, and they asked you about what's what what are the pathways nowadays? I want to do what you do. I want to help fish cockroaches out of people's ears i want to i want to put people's bones back together even when they don't know that it's me doing it i want to be working in emergency situations what's the pathway how do you get there nowadays yeah it's a it's a long road i mean i'm uh so i'm an advanced trainee in emergency medicine i'm 35 and i'm still not fully qualified so while i practice independently most of the time i still i still have a final set of exams next year before i'm a fully qualified uh, emergency medicine specialist. So um, it's a long road. I think if you want to do medicine, make sure you want to do it. Don't do it because your family thinks it's a good idea. Don't do it because you want to make money because you don't make as much money as you think, um, especially in emergency. Do it because you actually want to do it. Because if you get through medical school and suddenly you're a doctor when you're 23 and you realize you don't actually enjoy it, it's um, it's a pretty tough decision. It's a pretty tough place to be. And I've seen a lot of people be there. Yes. And and they get so far and then they realize maybe I'm in it for the wrong reason. And then, then the motivation's all different. Because certainly the first few years, once you are a doctor, are, uh, are not very glamorous, um, long hours, lots of unpaid overtime, lots of unglamorous procedures. And you're essentially a, a glorified secretary a lot of the time. Um, which is, you know, it's a great learning experience, but um, it's not it's not what you see on TV. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, you know, if if it is something you want to do, it's really it's really worthwhile in the end for sure. So if if it's not the money, and if it's not necessarily a set career path, what is it that attracts you to the role that you're in now, and and to put in the commitment, the time, the dedication, the effort, the learning, the study, the exams? and the learning on the job, what is it that keeps you fronting up every day to put yourself nowadays more at risk than any other time in a situation where you literally don't know what's going to happen today or on your next shift and potentially to have shift work thrown in there as well and, and, and I imagine there that's that's got its own complexity and challenge. You're right, it's not very glamorous. Why do you do it? Uh, yeah, I, I have been asked that and um, some people uh, seem surprised that I actually really do enjoy my job. Um, uh, yeah, like I, I really, you, you never quite know what's going to happen. And so, you know, for instance, last week I was on night shift and some of those nights I'm in charge of the emergency department at the Alfred and um, it's just a great problem-solving experience. Like you, you don't know what's going to happen. Um and certainly managing a, a very sick patient is a really interesting, challenging thing to do. Um, and everyone's a bit different. And so no patient, no two patients are the same. And, um, yeah, the job never stops, never gets boring. So, um, and it's a really nice environment to work in. I think we're kind of lucky right now. We, I still go to work and still have interactions with 
the same people I normally work with and, you know, some things have changed, but, uh, yeah, not, not as much has changed as a lot of other people. So, mm. And by the sounds of it, it fits your personality and, and we've journeyed together today in this conversation around the sense of adventure and looking for opportunities to explore and being willing to go through some hardship in order to enjoy it. And it sounds like that's really part of what your experience is. You you seek the adventure and you're prepared to do the work to to experience that. And I'm not by any stretch trying to suggest that it's it's enjoyable and it's pleasurable and somebody else's pain is your excitement for the day. But that sense of unknowing, that sense of um, problem solving and, and sorting it through without necessarily having a clear path every step of the way seems to be in line with your sense of, of adventure, which is a beautiful match. It's a, it's a great connection. If things go really well for you, let's say over the next five years, what's happening in your life in, in, you know, in the next three to five years? Yeah, well, um, I mean, I was pretty lucky last year. My, my wife and I got um, sent on a project with the Alfred Trauma Service to India. So we spent a couple of months in, in Chennai um, sort of analysing and redevelop, well, initially redeveloping the, the trauma systems in their main hospital in, in Chennai. Um, that's been put on hold. We we're hoping to go back this year, but not sure if that's ever going to happen again, which is disappointing. But, um, I mean, next year we're heading to Alice Springs to work in Flying Doctors. So, you know, um, that'll be a great a great new, new challenge. But um, in five years, hopefully doing something similar to what I'm doing now, still sort of hanging around the Alfred, doing emergency, doing some trauma work, um, getting more into some research, which is sort of what I've been doing this year. But, uh, yeah, that's that's probably about as far forward as I'm looking. I think beyond 6 to 12 months right now, it's a bit hard to see what's going to happen. For sure, for sure. And, and because we're in the midst of COVID-19 and that is very topical and for who knows how long that's really, really relevant, as a frontline worker in the medical field, do you have any thoughts, comments, observations, recommendations, suggestions that you might have for our audience? Because we'll be made up of some who have um, experienced the trauma of this pandemic firsthand. Others, you know, a few parts removed and others might even be thinking, this is just getting in my way. I'm, I'm annoyed. I'm angry. I'm frustrated. Some would be saying, Ah, it's it's over. It's a beat up. It's not real. You're in a different environment than many of us. What do you see? What do you say to that? Yeah, it's hard um, because so many people are affected more in the economic sense um, and seeing threats to their life, their livelihood, their family, and that's in, must be incredibly frightening. Um, and so I can understand why people would you know, want to get back to work and want to get open the place up. And and certainly, you know, it doesn't affect younger people as much. But then by the same token, I've seen younger people get very sick and seen people in their 50s and 60s die in our, in our hospital. Um, I think my perspective is probably skewed because I have to walk into those rooms when I know someone has COVID and they're coughing everywhere and I may not trust or have a, the PPE that I want. Um, although that's getting better. Um, and that, 
And I guess from my perspective, every time I walk into one of those rooms, I'm thinking, am I going to make a mistake when I'm taking off that mask and bring it home and get sick myself? And so certainly from my perspective, the fewer patients' rooms I have to walk into and put myself at risk, the uh, you know, the shorter this pandemic goes, or shorter, um, you know, the shorter time we're having this high amount of cases, the better. Uh, so I'd prefer it. While it's probably going to be the event in my career I look back upon, and this is why a lot of us do medicine, I'd certainly prefer it gets over sooner rather than later. Yes, well, I, uh, I agree. Um, your willingness, your desire to help, to serve, to put your, literally to put yourself on the line is, it's quite inspiring. I wonder, can you uh, look back to any experiences of school that helped you to be outward looking, to help you to consider what can I do to help? How do I serve? How do I, was it modeling? Was it a, a program? Were there experiences that you had at school that kind of built in that, or maybe at home, that built in you that desire to be on the lookout, to, to travel to India, to try and help there, to work in a hospital where you're putting your, yourself on the line every day, to help people in their life, whatever situation might come wheeling through that door. Where does that come from? Um, yeah, I don't know. I think my, my parents probably, you know, had a lot to do instilling that in me. Um, yeah, I don't know. I just always kind of, I never had a particularly altruistic sense growing up, but uh, I think it always made, like, I certainly do enjoy this part of the job when, you know, you can actually, you can actually help some people occasionally. A lot of the time it feels like you're not, but, um, but yeah, it is, it is a really nice opportunity to be able to do that sometimes when you, you know, those occasional patients where you're like, oh, that actually really made a difference what we did today. Um, I, I don't think there's anything, there, there's no sentinel event that really led me to that. I think it's just something that, uh, yeah, I'm glad I, I always wanted to do a job that felt impactful. Yeah, yeah. Well, we we appreciate, we love what you do. And, and even though we none of us want to be in your care in that sense, because we don't want to have to go wheeling into the emergency department, we're grateful that people like you and your teammates are doing what you do and have committed to to the work that you do. I, I'm intrigued, you know, and, and this might be a stretch for you, just hang with me for a moment. So much of a plumber, their work is critical, it's vital. They do the work, they get mucky, they get dirty, and then they go and cover it all over and nobody actually sees what they've done. In your role, the patient often would have no idea what you're doing. You'll never see them again because once they're out of that critical state, once they're out of that emergency portion of their journey, you, you're no longer part of that, 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 that pathway for them. And so there is no thanks. There is no acknowledgement. There is no appreciation. There is no, um, you look back and say, look what I did. And, and, you know, I made that, I did that, I built that, I, there's there's no recognition is there like how do you how do you cope with that yeah it's certainly um yeah that is true um 
when people are very sick in emergency departments and they head off to, and we, we fix some, some problems and then they head off to operating theatre or intensive care. Uh, yeah, they, they, they don't remember that really. Um, and, uh, yeah, we do get some letters of thanks occasionally. Um, we get a lot of complaints as well, <laughs> you know, why was I waiting so long and, uh, you know, things like that. But, um, uh, look, we, as we go through medical training, we do rotate through other specialties. Um, I think one of the times I actually have been able to see people out the other side was when I was working in the trauma department and I would spend one day a week seeing patients who came back after a few months. And so they'd been out of intensive care and sort of gone through the rehabilitation pathway. And sometimes this patient would walk in and I'd treated them three months prior and I'd seen them in intensive care on a ventilator for every day for a couple of weeks. And suddenly they walk in and talk to me and I don't recognize them. And, um, that, that was actually really nice um, to be able to catch up with those people and see see that sometimes these people really, that you don't, you'd kind of not written off, but you'd really thought they're going to have a rough time. It's really nice to see that some of them do really, you know, have a good outcome. Absolutely. Absolutely. Some, some a rewarding element of that and, and a sense of satisfaction, I'm sure. Last question about your current work and your career, and, and I just I'm intrigued. These older buildings like the Alfred that keep getting revamped and updated, and technology improves, and so we need to try and equip and re-equip. Are there are there things about the Alfred, and and you know you don't have to give us specifics, but are there kind of little I don't know underground pathways, or are there things that most people don't see that are you know kind of some little quirky little thing that you can tell us about the history of a place like that? Yeah, definitely. Um, the Alfred's a good example of that, actually, because it's sort of been built in bits and pieces over the last 100 years and had bits added on here and there. And, um, yeah, when you're a, a resident or a registrar working on night shift, you often, you know, I'd often wander around and see where this corridor went. And, um, actually, there's a there's a doctor's office sort of up a stairwell on the roof of one of the old buildings on the seventh floor with this sort of balcony overlooking Faulkner Park and then the CBD. And it's a bit of a tradition for all the residents to head up there on New Year's and watch the fireworks. And so, um, yeah, it's, uh, it is a bit of a maze. Um, but, and I don't, I, I don't know all the pathways, but yeah, it's, it's kind of fun exploring those old hospitals. They're, they're pretty interesting. For sure, for sure. No, that's good stuff. We're going to uh, to move into a, a, a section of our uh, conversation that, that, if you like, it's called the lightning round, and I'm going to throw a whole bunch of questions at you, and it's it's really the first thing that pops into your head. Some of them will be things that you'll you'll remember straight away, and, and others might need to require a little bit of explanation, but are you ready for the lightning round, Tim Abel? Yeah, sure. <laughs> so, when you were at Yarra, what house were you in? Hughes. And were Hughes any good back in your day? Not really. Okay. <laughs> what was your contribution? What, where did you shine for Hughes? Uh, I did athletics. I did hurdles and uh, long jump uh, and swimming. I, did, I was breaststroke. I was okay at that. Yep. And if you had a choice, would you prefer to go to house swimming or house athletics? Uh, probably athletics. Swimming was a long day and you couldn't escape. Yeah. <laughs> what would you regularly find in your lunchbox while you were a student at school? Uh, I remember soggy egg and egg and lettuce sandwiches. And how is that different to today? Yeah. How is that different to today? 
Uh, yes, it is different today. Much more likely to find something uh, more interesting today. And do you make your own lunch? Uh, yeah, most of the time. <laughs> Very good. Um, I wonder what your first car was when you, uh, well, first started to drive. Uh, a Datsun Skyline. Ooh. Is it still running? It is. Uh, it was, uh, we bought it off a guy who used to run trips across the Simpson Desert in it. So it was jacked up and, uh, yeah, it, it's a fun car. Is there a piece of work that you're particularly proud of? It might be an assignment, a group task, or something that you put in a considerable amount of work on and you got the result that you expected? Or was there something that you thought, ah, oh, you know, and you did an all-nighter and it, it turned out better than you expected? Whew. I have very little memory of my uh, assignments back in year 11, back in, in high school. I'm not sure I could answer that one. <laughs> That's I built a nice smart. table. I built a nice table in woodwork. Oh, nice. That's good. That's good. If you had the opportunity to host a dinner party and, uh, and, and you're doing something nicer than your soggy egg sandwiches, who would be three guests, whether they be historical and no longer with us or current affairs? Who would be three people you'd love to sit down to for dinner? Um... I reckon uh, these days, Brett Sutton is probably an interesting one to have a chat a chat with. Um, and going on that theme, probably uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci and um, maybe throwing Elon Musk in the, uh, uh, in the mix there. It'd be an interesting conversation, I feel. It sure would be. It sure would be. Uh, each with uh, some significant responsibility and opportunity ahead of them. Yeah. For sure. Is there, I imagine as a medical student and, and now practicing, you're constantly reading and trying to stay up to date. Is there a, a great book that you would recommend? Non-fiction, fiction, something that's uh, that not necessarily medical related? I think if anyone's even contemplating going into medicine, reading The House of God uh, is an excellent book that gives you a bit of a more realistic uh, view of what it's actually like to be a medical doc resident. Yeah. Okay. So some helpful, honest insight. It's a very irreverent look at the uh, uh, the darker side of medicine. Yeah. Okay. okay. What does success mean to you? Uh, yeah. I, I guess recently I probably have seen some success in my career, but really uh, – the main thing that really makes me happy is feeling like I had some direction and having some projects that I enjoy working on. And frankly, even if that means just doing some renovating around the house, something, something moving forward, something that I can keep, you know, um, keep myself interested in is really, you know, what I probably enjoy the most. Um, mm. I'm lucky to find that in medicine, but uh, there are probably a lot of other things I'd still enjoy and find successful if I was keeping myself interested and stimulated. Yeah. Fantastic. And as we've said, in medicine and in your field, you're, there are constant updates and improvements or recommended improvements, at least with apparatus and equipment that you have access to. So technology is something that is part of your world. Is there a, a an app or a device that you use regularly, whether it be for personal or for your employment, that that you would recommend that it's a, that it's been a ripper for you. 
<laughs> um, a lot of the medical devices that I would use on a regular basis are really at the for the really the, the sick people. You know, they're they're the ones that you don't want to you don't want to you have used upon you in any situation because if you need them, you're going to be really sick. Um, you know, a lot of the research these days is really around. Uh, strategies on how best we can ventilate patients. So using a mechanical ventilator for coronavirus patients and a lot of interesting research in that, but um, uh, you don't want to go near them if you don't have to. Um, yeah. <laughs> mm. No, I understand that. Do you have a, a daily practice, a habit, a routine or a rhythm that helps keep you at your best? Um, well, I think all like everyone else, we're still affected by the lockdown. And um, I think really the thing that's kept me sane over the last few months is trying to exercise regularly, have a bunch of activities outside work that I can, you know, at home keep involved with to try and, as otherwise it can be all consuming. You know, you read the news, it's about COVID, you go to work, you train on how to manage COVID patients, then you manage COVID patients and um, it'd be quite easy to get a bit down. So doing things that are not medical is for me, very important. Yeah. Do you pay attention to the news? Do you watch the news regularly? Yeah. Yeah. Pretty up to date with that, I think. Excellent. Excellent. I wonder um, whether there's uh, some advice that you received along the way that you would uh, keep going back to, that you refer back to, or that, that was pivotal in your journey of life so far. Relation, not relation to the news. <laughs> no, not in relation to the news, no. Um, I've had a lot of good mentors along the way um, who certainly at the time I didn't necessarily realise they were mentoring me, but the advice they gave was often really quite, you know, um, probably profound in hindsight. Uh I'm trying to think on the top of my head, but there's certainly a couple of doctors in the trauma department that I found have really helped me along the way. And not necessarily by saying one thing that changed the way I thought, but those helpful prods here and there that, you know, maybe think about it this way, maybe think about your approach, maybe think about how you might come across. It's been really very helpful, but I probably don't have any pearl, pearls of wisdom to impart. That's okay. I, I think, as you said, you're still in training, but I anticipate that, that your nature, and maybe there are others like you in your field, but you tend to me, at least, to sound like somebody who's going to come alongside others and, and be a team player, and you'll gently, gently offer some thoughts, some observations, some perspective to them, like a, a great mentor can do. And uh, I think you've, you've got a little bit of that in you as well. Tim, you've been really generous with your time. And so I only have one more question and it's a kind of a two-pronged attack. And so I want you to answer the question and then I want you to answer the question. And my question is, what's the one question that you really wish I had asked you? <laughs> uh, <laughs> the one thing that I have been thinking about is that it just actually started snowing outside my window uh, up in the Dandenongs. So that wasn't really a question, but that's certainly an abnormal thing to happen. Um, <laughs> uh, I don't know. Um, 
they're probably the one the, there were a couple of things about high school that I probably didn't talk about that were really quite you know really helped like going on high school exchange to Japan with Mr. Hawking which I uh which I'd you know love to catch up and chat with those guys about one day but um I don't know no got nothing off the top of my head <laughs> Travel has been part of your journey and something that you've enjoyed along the way and you've given us a couple of snippets. What are the benefits of travel? Like why is that something that you would recommend to others if if and when we can do that again? Yeah, definitely. I mean, my wife and I have been lucky enough to spend quite a few years travelling to a lot of different places around the world and live in a bunch of different countries. Definitely, not only does it broaden the way in which you can interact with people and um, in and you certainly learn a lot of a lot more about how to actually talk to people, how to interact with other cultures, how to see people from different perspectives, which is very helpful in our line of work. But um, yeah, it really does just broaden yourself as a person, I feel, um, and make you more adaptable in different situations because uh, you know, so it's quite easy to be comfortable at home and in your in your job and do the same thing every day but if you are faced with a different set of challenges while traveling it can certainly yeah make you a bit more um, adaptable person i appreciate that you're somebody who is seeking to constantly challenge yourself and to grow through those experiences and i really appreciate the opportunity that you've given and made yourself available to have a conversation here on the inspired by yara podcast tim amos from the class of 2002 This is the Inspired by Yarra podcast, and we appreciate that there are elements of your journey that have been inspired by Yarra, but you indeed are an inspiration to Yarra. And so for that, we thank you. Keep up the good work. Take care of yourself and keep looking after others. All the best for the days and the weeks and the months ahead. Thank you. Thank you. And there you have it. That wraps up another episode of Inspired by Yarra. I told you, didn't I? What a good guy. Putting his, literally putting his life on the line in order to save the lives of others. I love his commitment to serve. I love his dedication to the lives, the health, the emergency of people who will never be able to come back and say thank you. And yet there's something built inside of Tim that calls him on to keep learning and keep doing his part, doing what he can to save the lives of others. Inspirational. I hope you'll join us again at our next episode when we'll again sit down with another Yog, a Yarra old grammarian, and unpack some of their journey, some of their learnings, some of their adventures along the way. My name's Paul Joy, and on behalf of everyone here at Yarra, and particularly those who help put this podcast together. I want to wish you another day of inspiration where you get on out there and make a positive impact in the world around you.